Alrighty, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Olsher hanging out with Richie Ote. What's up, my brother? How's it going, Steve? The oh, boys are back in town. White Way's got it under control in the studio. And Kelly's got it under control back headquarters. Uh, our lovely Mary Willey. I don't even know. When's the last time the band got back together? I don't even remember when Mary was here last with all of us. Seems it's like a month or so. Been a while. Yeah. That traveling stuff and the beach stuff. And now she's not feeling 100%. We got to get Mary back in here. We miss you, Mary. Hope you're feeling better after today and here on beyond eight figures we do sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited their companies for more than 10 million dollars or currently run businesses that gross more than 10 million dollars and we get to the bottom of exactly how they started and scaled and in some cases exited from those businesses sometimes and, both um, and oftentimes both it's it seems like there's a magical formula I think that's like when I sat back and I started thinking the other day about like, okay, so why do we start this show? You know, there, there's, so there's two reasons. Number one, I wanted to see exactly how these companies get to the point of moving beyond just being sort of a solopreneur-esque type company. And then how do they make that leap, right? Because so many businesses just can't make that leap to actually skip that next, well, that next phase, right, of, of scaling. So you start, you scale, you exit. And so that was one of the things that I was thinking, and I know we've had our conversations around it as well, of course, Richie, but you know, that was one of the main things, right, is, is what, are, what, what did they do? Like, how, how did they make that leap when some companies struggle to get to six figures? Okay, that's one thing. They get there. Getting to seven figures, you kind of can do it now, even as a solopreneur, maybe with a couple of part-time type people or uh, you know, maybe contracted employees, et cetera. But then if you really want to get to eight figures and beyond, there, there's something that happens. And so that was the thinking there originally. And then also like, you know, kind of the secret sauce, because like you said, in some cases, both. Why do some people, you know, strike lightning more than once? Like, how does that happen? That doesn't seem fair. <laughs> some people can't get it right once. And then so many of the people that we bring onto the show, they've done it more than once. So is it lightning in a bottle? Is it what? What is it? Right. So it's uh, it's been an interesting trek. And if you've missed any of the past episodes, uh, be sure that you do check out the archive there. Uh, of course, you can find a lot of those past episodes at beyond eight figures dot com. And then, well, wherever you listen to podcasts, if you're uh, if you're into that kind of thing, you can check out a podcast, uh, of course, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Overcast. I believe we are. In all of those places, what do they used to say on the television? In all those places where something is sold, something like that. There was a there was a TV phrase that they used to say. Adam, uh, do you remember that phrase that they used to say? In all places where something is sold, there was a something there. Do you remember that or no? I, I don't, but I know what you're talking about. It's right the tip of my tongue as well. I'm dating myself, so there you have it. All right, we're joined today by Adam, and I'm, I'm don't think I'm going to butcher this because it seems pretty straightforward. But is it Hergen Rother? Yeah, I mean, it took me to high school to figure that out. So, Steve, you're way ahead of the game. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's I peaked in high school, man. This is as good as it gets. Like, it's, it's been all downhill from there. So, Adam Hergenrother is hanging out with us today. Um, and and let's just get it off the table here right out of the gate. So how, how do you meet the criteria for Beyond Eight Figures? Have you exited from a business for more than $10 million? Do you currently run a business that grosses more than $10 million or built or both? Actually, I, I've done both. I mean, currently right now I run organizations that have about a billion dollars in sales, though we're in real estate. So that sales number is a little sexy and it doesn't always translate to it. 
So you bring that down and actually even numbers in terms of actual dollars we bring in, it's around 37 million. Um, but I have built up uh, healthcare campuses and sold those off for around 17, 18 million dollars. And those have been two to three year ventures as well, too. So I've done a little bit of both. Yeah, I know in, in reading about you and, and kind of getting caught up. And, and by the way, thanks for joining us here on the show. I mean, you're a man in demand and we appreciate you taking the time to, to hang out with us. What, what attracted you to joining us on Beyond Eight Figures? I'm sure you get approached all the time. You know, hey, Adam, share your brilliance. Adam, come on, you know, blah, blah, blah. You probably get asked all the time. What, uh, what, what, what attracted you to joining us here? What are we doing here that uh, you think can be helpful to the audience? Well, I love your philosophy in that a lot of people can go out. There's a lot of people that can get to a, a couple hundred thousand dollars. And as you said before, there's a lot of people that can actually get close to that seven figure mark now, but there is a model, a system, and really a way of thinking that has to occur for, in order for somebody to take themselves to the next level. And I, I really think about it as, as, how do you think like a CEO? And that's essentially what you're bringing to the audience is teaching people, not necessarily the models and tools but how to actually change their thinking so they can approach business in a different environment so they can actually hit the numbers that they went out there and got. You know, as you were talking, I drew out this amazing slide for you guys. I know my handwriting is awesome. Right. Show, that, oh, show the, that again. So by the way, folks, we do we do broadcast live every yes. Thursday here on Beyond Eight Figures, uh, sometimes at noon Pacific, sometimes at one Pacific. Today, it's noon Pacific. So that is a, and then we do it on Zoom here as well. So you can catch that feed. So that, that I mean, that's a hell of a, of a drawing. There, you. Man. So you, yeah. so obviously you graduate with an art degree before you got <laughs> into real estate and entrepreneurs. So what does that say? I, we, them? Is that, what yeah, did that so say? I always, one of the things when I teach people is that, um, you know, when you, when you have I, you have a job. And then a lot of people get to this we stage and they think they have a business, but really they built the nucleus around them. So if they were to leave, they don't really have an organization or business that would really crumble because you still have that job. That's kind of why you have the I to we point at the job. And then what I always do is I draw a line down the middle there because the gap between we to they do it is a monumental shift. And it's a shift in our thinking. The other thing is, is that it's very difficult for an individual um, that is used to being able, look, when an entrepreneur jumps in and they have to get something done through sheer will and energy, they can push themselves through to get a deal through or get something completed. But the minute you start relying on other people, it becomes very humbling because people don't respond the same way you do. And they, you, you're like, what? They did what? And so you have to learn this whole new skill on how to lead through people. Most people are spending way too much time trying to read books about um, things that don't matter nearly as much in the beginning. Like you should be reading books about how to hire people, how to lead people. Because if you want to get into the 10-figure world, it's going to be all about how you lead other people, which starts with leading yourself. That's why it's such a gap to get there. And it's really hard. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's hard because you have mistakes being made, people costing you money. Um, and these things start showing up in your life. And it makes it, it makes it very challenging for somebody to want to continue to press that forward. Because what happens is when, when, when they get hit with a couple obstacles, it's much easier for them, Steve, just to go back and say, I'm going to go do it myself. And that mindset alone keeps people from reaching that next tipping point in their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great, 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 great points. I just want to close the loop, though, for a second here because I didn't quite see what was on the left side. So it was the I, we, and then job. And what was on the other side of the line? So then you have they, which goes to business, and then you have theirs, which the theirs is the next one of how do you get somebody, which is really where I like to operate, where how do you get somebody in your world 
where they are creating inside your world, their own world, and they're running it. It's like the Warren Buffett philosophy, such a decentralized um, philosophy inside your own world. I mean, Warren has a company that just owns a bunch of companies, right? It's their company and doing it, essentially what it is, right? Yeah. That's how I think, um, at least that's how I approach businesses. I actually suck at running companies. I mean, I'm not really that good at many things, but I can create them. Then I fire myself from them so I can put better people in charge so they can take it and run with it. And it makes it their business. Mm-hmm. And then we continue to go push beyond that. There's about a million things behind that that I have, but I don't want to dominate here, Richie. What, what are you thinking in the moment? Um, well, completely <laughs> ma- well, two things. Like you were, when you first opened up, you were talking about a secret sauce. And most people hear the secret sauce, they think like magic pill, like you're just going to take something and it always is work. He mentioned the two other things. It's always a mindset. The various different things from selling toners to real estate to health products. Like we've covered the gamut, but it's always mindset and leadership. Mm. They've had different amounts of money, billionaires, multi-digit millionaires, always mindset, always leadership every single time. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's interesting because he also said one of the questions, like he fires himself. When I say like what usually has to break to get to that next level. Mm-hmm. And that, that sounds like one of your breaks. Like you, yeah. it sounds like, you know, your zone of genius. You, you have the idea, you get it going, you get it started. And then you're like, well, I'm not really good at doing this yeah. other. I'm good at maybe talking to the 10 people and I can lead those 10 people, but I can't lead a thousand people. So you focus on management, I'm assuming then? Yeah, I mean, in every single one of my, so I have five organizations right now and all of them have their own leadership and team. And so my focus becomes on how do I, there's three three most important things that I think any leader needs to do is one, cast a vision, right? And it's often as much, and let me just remind the listeners too, is that people get lost in the word vision. Vision doesn't always mean 10 years down the road, five years down the road. Vision can be for the next five minutes, can be for the next hour, can be for the next week. So I think number one is you always want to cast a vision for you and for your leadership team. Number two is you want to provide as much clarity as you can. The more clarity, the faster people operate. And also when I speak to that, it's not just clarity for your people, it's clarity for you. And the way I like to to give a tactic to people to do this is, the words that you use either through a podcast or the words that you use through an email or through a video to you and your people or to the audience, you should speak to them so a five-year-old can understand what you're saying. Because if you can bring it, I have three kids under under seven mm. and it frustrates me sometimes because they keep asking me questions. And the reason why it frustrates me is because I actually don't know the answer to what they're saying. Um, so it forces me. So whenever I think about that, I'm writing communication. I always try to bring it down to a level where a five-year-old can really understand it so that there's so much clarity that people don't get lost in the words of that I'm using. And then number three that goes along with that is just removing the roadblocks along the way. So if I can stay in that zone and provide that vision, the clarity, moving the roadblocks, all of us can row in the same direction. I find for most businesses, it's not that people aren't willing to work, right? It's that people are typically worked on the wrong objective, the wrong mission, the wrong um, uh project that they're on or the wrong people are on the wrong project but if you're so if you're constantly using that as a guide or a compass in your business you're forcing you and your organization to have the best people in the right seats at the right moment pressing the right button Mm -hmm. and so just making sure that we cover all five so cast the vision the clarity remove the roadblocks what were the other two 
You said well, three. three oh, there were three. That. Sorry, I'm, I'm thinking you got five. Why? I mean, yeah, you know, was, given that you said, you said fifth grade. Maybe that's where the five <laughs> kind of set in. Okay, that's enough. Who needs more than three? So let's um, so let's talk about your. And I want to just take a couple of steps backwards so we can get uh, current then uh, as right. well. So and, and I think where I got the five also is you said you've got five organizations yes. that yeah. you run. Okay, so let's. Let's go way back. Now, you're a fairly young guy. I mean, you're early 40s at the most? 37. How much? 37. 37. Oh, I thought you said 47. I was like, man, you look great. And then you just, yeah. All right. So 37. So, wow. So five companies right now. Let's go back to then some of the embryonic stages. Um, t- take us through the, the first winner and or loser from an entrepreneurial uh, perspective. So what, what was the first real endeavor that you took on? Well, let me just to take a little bit of origins, um, I'll back up for 30 seconds. Sure. But up until I was about 16 years old, um, I was about 100 pounds overweight. I was in the drugs. Um, I was failing classes. You know, I was just that role model student you wanted your kid to hang out with at that time, right? Um, and so what, what happened was during that period, of time, I can look back and obviously use clearer words now um, than I didn't really realize back then, but I was just really extremely insecure. Um, I was trying to live somebody else's life. And one day I came home and I just started crying just literally just had reached a point where I knew life was not supposed to be about this. And I'll full circle this all. Um, but then I came and I was like, you know what, there's, there's something more like this to life. And so I made the decision right then that I was no longer going to live this life anymore. So I lost hundred pounds in a year. I stopped hanging out with the kids that I was hanging out with. Um, and, uh, they actually ended up stealing everything I had within two weeks, which is this whole other side note. Um, then I got into sports and sports kind of catapulted my, my, my career that way. I bring that up because people say, wow, you're young and you've had success. The only difference is I started really intentionally working on myself when I was 16. And I just got about 10 to 12 years on most people. And that's the only reason why I'm not different than anybody else. Just I started putting more time and energy towards that at an earlier age. Fast forward, Steve, about 10 years I um, to my first business. I, uh, I'd been in business for a couple of years and I had this 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 kind of this dollar amount that if I netted $500,000 that I was somehow going to be a, this magical person, but like some, like, I got to know what it was. It was just in my mind. Like if I had this money, like either like a present was going to come down or I was going to get some trophy to put, I don't know what it was, but like I had this mindset that like, Hey, if I get $500,000, it's going to be crazy. And um, that year I ended up having a little bit more. And I remember having this conversation with my mom. I said, mom, who doesn't care anything about money? And I was like, hey, you just want, it's pretty cool. I made like 540 grand or something like that this year. And she's like, oh, that's great. Moved on. And um, I remember like realizing that people just don't care, that people just didn't actually care what it was. And so I think the worst part about that was though, is I actually got more depressed in my life because I had this impression that I was going to be living this, 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 the latter life, if you will, it's very linear. First, second, third grade, you graduate, you graduate college, you get a house, you get a house, you get a partner, you get a dog, you take out a home equity line, remodel your kitchen, blah, blah, blah. And each one of those steps is supposed to make you happier. But I realized it didn't. And so right at that moment, I realized that I needed to change what my success looked like in my business, what my what, what the failure was and what success was. So that's when I went on the whole inward journey. I'm not going to get in the spiritual side of things right now. But that's, that was my first kind of success was me getting into real estate, netting a lot of money, but then realizing there was a different part of me that, that didn't need to make this money. Um, mm. Money is great. I'm not saying anything right there, but there's, there's a, I wanted, I didn't, I wasn't experiencing the joy or the thing that I was looking for that I knew that I just happened to be 10 years ago. So I switched my thinking around about that 
And the interesting thing is the minute I started making it about other people, that's when my world exploded. And I think people need to hear that because it's, it feels like when you're giving something up, it's like, it's going to be gone, but the life supports what supports life. And so the minute I made that change, that, that mental switch, that's when organizations and talented and people started coming into my world and it's, it's blossomed to where it is today. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and thanks for sharing that. And we'll get into some more detail around that as well. But I, I think I'm going to start a mastermind for uh, real estate developers because uh, I did real estate development for about 18 years and I'm still uh, involved with it to some extent here and moved to San Diego. I haven't done anything since I've been here, but uh, that's, uh, that, that, that'll change. Uh, we can talk for days about real estate, as I'm sure. Um, but like you, I had that sort of epiphany come to Jesus moment, whatever you want to call it, where, although yeah. I'm Jewish, it wouldn't be Jesus. Um, but, you know, it was like <laughs> came to come to that moment, whatever that is, where it's like, okay, my life is, uh, well, it's really good for me and those closest to me, but really no one else. And so how can I be of more impact to the world and do more positive things and leave a better legacy? And now I look back 10 years later and I go, what the fuck was I doing? I should have just stayed in real estate because I would have made so much more money if I had just stayed in the game. So I'm going to start a a mastermind for people who are developers and thinking about leaving real estate because they want to have a a better impression of themselves, I guess. But that's (laughs) That's a discussion for another day. So anyway, uh, let's let's circle back then. So I mean, the first business that you generated half a million that that was engrossed that was net take home. That, I mean, was what, net. that was net. That was net income. That was net income. So that's I mean, that's a pretty substantial. So to get to five hundred k in net income, you're doing at least I mean, just guessing here three, four, five million dollars a year, if not more. It was real estate sales, and so we averaged about a forty-seven percent profit margin when you're in there because profit margins in real estate sales can be pretty high when you're doing all the production. It drops mm-hmm. significantly when you start adding a different low, layer of component, and you're no longer in production. You have a cost of sale for paying out an agent, but at that time, we were just under fifty percent profit margin. And just just so I'm clear, when you're saying real estate sales, are you saying going in, buying property, cleaning the property, flipping the property, and also representing the sale of the property? I mean, I wasn't flipping at the time. Any investment that I had, I was holding at that point. Um, I bought my first piece of real estate in college and, and held, and then and now I've got about almost 900 units. Um, but the uh, now it was back then. It was just real estate sales, just the brokerage okay. commission on that. Um, is gotcha. what I was talking about there. But to scale to that point, you obviously had to bring on brokers and and so on. So let's just go back through that. So you said, Hey, I, I think there's an opportunity here for us to sell real estate. I think I can do a better job than what some of the other people are doing. Here's going to be my differentiators between myself and, you know, whoever it was at the time that were the leaders in your particular space. So how did you, well, first, obviously you must've gone to get your, your brokerage license or whatever it is. So here you are, you're sitting there, it's Adam. He's got this piece of paper that says now you can represent folks and sell real estate, you know, whatever. You can represent buyers and sellers. Then what? So how what what happened after you got that piece of paper? Like what 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 happened then to get to the point of being able to pocket half a million a year? Yeah, you know, it was it was one of the worst downturns in our entire history. And and I didn't even have an when I got my license, I didn't have an office in the in the firm that I was with, and I was just a I was just an agent. And um I remember, first of all, at that point, money was all that was important to me. And so I literally just jumped in there and just started working 16, 17 hours a day. I just outworked everybody else. It's really what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point, I actually, I mean, business is my sport. So I still enjoy that aspect of it. But back then it was just there. I would go home. I'd do anything. I was, I'd walk around handing out my car to force my owners. I'd knock. I'd just do anything that generated business. And I remember this, the first 30 days that I was there, um, I turned in three deals the first 30 days as an agent. 
I remember walking into the office meeting and people came up to me like, oh, wait, what'd you do? What'd you do? And I was like, did I do something wrong? Is something wrong? And they're like, no, like people just don't do that. And I remember sitting there in that room going, they're like, people may do three or four, the average agent does like seven deals a year and you did mm. three in your first 30 days. Wow. And I said, well, what do people do then? And that was really my, like people, that's, and I was like, really, I'm not the smartest dude, but I was like, all I did was just get out there, right? I just, I just got over rejection. So the minute I started doing that, then I, from there, it just started as, as income started coming in there, I realized that I needed leverage in my life and that came more natural to me, um, meaning that I just I'm kind of inherently lazy, I guess, when it comes to that. So I just started, I went through about four or five different assistants in the first like eight months, right? When they were writing and drawing better than I was or worse than I was, that was a problem. Mm. So we let those, we let them go. Um, so I learned about the mistakes of hiring and firing early on. And then I just started building a real estate team around me with buyer agents. Back then, there was no real estate teams necessarily. So that's kind of the first business, the first leverage that I started tasting. Um, actually, to back up, I bought a, in real estate, in, in, in college, I had a roommate that was like, was that was in college, but never went to college. Does that make sense to you guys? Like sure. he just slept on the couch. Like yeah, he, he was never, on the eight-year plan and exactly, eventually, exactly. yeah. And his father, yeah, his, yeah, he got it. His father owned a car dealership. I took 500, he asked me, he said, look, I got this deal, this car, and um, it'd take about $500, about all the money I had at the time. And he said, look, I'm going to buy it. So I gave him $500, he put $500 in. He bought it and like eight days later, we made like $1,500. So we each made like 750. That was the first taste of leverage in my life. I never saw the car. I never did anything with the repairs. I never sold it. And I made $750. And at the time, we put 500 and you get 750. I was like, this is amazing, right? So I did this for a year and that's how I got the money to buy my first investment property. Mm. I also learned the value of contracts during that because after a period of time, he just, we didn't need my money. So that's, I learned that whole lesson too. Yeah. Um, that's, that got me the taste of leverage. So then when I built my first, my first business, um, we, uh, we, we, we started hiring um, buyer agents and, and started building a W2 team around me. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So I just want to make sure that everybody's clear here then in terms of the the business that you, well, let's close the loop on that one. So did you, did you end up then saying, let me go out on my own and start my own brokerage? Cause it sounds like you were an agent at that point, just kind of yes. hustling and doing your yeah. thing. So you're making money selling, selling, representing yeah. buyers, sellers, et cetera, exactly. picking up a property here, or there, et cetera. Yeah. Let's, let's go through the the leap then. What was, what was the leap out of that? And what did you go into? Yeah. Well, success is sequential, not simultaneous, which is people like to think it's simultaneous, but it's not. So about three years into that, um, I started realizing that I wanted to own my own brokerage. So I started exploring that. And then I launched my own brokerage in 2009, which is now the number one brokerage in the entire state. We did that in about three years. Um, so I launched that from zero. Um, and uh, now we've got a little under 200, 200 agents here, mm. uh, which is, which is great. So we've launched that. And then after I launched the brokerage, so that's, so that's, the, I, the, I still have the team and I have somebody running the team in 2010. So I'm not hands-on and active deals anymore. Then I then took my energy and put it towards launching the brokerage, which then I hired the right manager, leader, um, and, and operations team to start running that. So I got my hands off of that. And then about 2011, I launched expansion, which we're in 16 different States. We're actually, we just came out and we're the number four real estate team in the world, um, according to the Wall Street Journal uh, last year, which is pretty cool. And we basically, I looked at real estate as that um, it, 
similar to Starbucks. When you walk into Starbucks in Vermont or Florida, there's the same experience. So we wanted to bring that same level of experience to the real estate transaction. So the consumer is forward facing and they have the same listing experience, closing experience, marketing experience, post-marketing experience. So we built that whole system and operation team to do that. And that was, again, after um, about seven years into this, we launched that. And then I built the organization team that has now expanded that entire world in 2012. So 2010 brokerage, 2011 expansion, 2012, I launched BlackRock Construction and Development, um, which is the arm that started taking my cash flow and investing my cash flow into real estate. Mm-hmm. So then I, then I started using that as a, I built a team around there, lost like 700 grand the first year because it was all people in development and just willing to put money into it. Second year, we lost money again. Um, but then the third year, I never wanted a job in that company. So I, I just kept hiring people to, to push that organization forward. And now we own healthcare campuses. We partner with three companies. We have a luxury division, a production division, a property management division. Um, and, uh, and, and we, we own a bunch of rental properties and, and market rates and commercial buildings as well too. Mm. Um, so that launched and we've been on the Inc 5,000 list. We're number 42, um, which is kind of cool. The highest that anybody in the state of Vermont's ever been, um, for that, which I'm proud of my team for that. Um, and so then that's launched into, 2012 then 2014 we launched our training organization and right around that same time I lost my foundation which um, supports kids and fitness because that was so important to me as I shared in my story earlier so that's kind of the the, the trilogy of the organizations that we're, we're involved with now yeah yeah and I mean it, it just kind of begs the question of what would you say to someone who is looking to to get out of that I we and the job then into the they and the business and the theirs like how do you, how do you what eh, what was that that was it a key hire was it um, and I guess I'm just really trying to figure out like how do you yeah. do it when it's just you and you're running things and then do you do you do you build up the business to the point where you have enough revenue first and then you use that revenue to bring in someone to replace yourself or do you raise capital to fund bringing in those people to replace yourself? I think that's where so many of the solopreneurs and and small business owners struggle is like they're at that point where there's, there's not enough margin between what it is that they're bringing in and where it is that they, they want to go and would need to go in order to hire someone. So how, how do you do that? How did you do that? I love the question and the drill down there because that's a, that's a big one for people. Um, well, number one, I still think too many entrepreneurs increase their lifestyle when they needed to really take and live less lifestyle and put it back into people. Um, I made that mistake early on when I, when I bought some things and I realized that really wasn't doing it for me. Um, for me, it was when I realized that I started living less um, materially and started taking my money and investing it back into a person. And so I just started, once I got that taste, when you invest into a person, they should give you more money and they should give you time. The problem is, is most of the investments that people make into people are the wrong people. So they end up costing them money in time. Mm -hmm. And so then they get caught in this trap of thinking that I can't do this or I can't build this. And they just go back to doing it themselves. And then they get, they may even try it again three years later after they listen to something. And then they do the same thing. The reason is because nobody spends the time up front to learn about hiring, to Mm -hmm. learn about leverage, to increase their own personal growth. When I, and, and 
the reason why I am where today is because of other people. It's mentors in my life that have changed my thinking that way and got me to think that. And so I spent a couple hundred grand in about two years from 2010 to 2012, a little bit before in 2009, of just traveling everywhere to learn about the hiring process, about behavioral analysis. I took every single event that you could possibly think of that was out there just to learn about how other people acted and responded and myself and my strengths and all those different things you could do. And then I went out and started teaching people how to hire so I could personally master that. And so then one, cause that's really the key. How do you get your Tom Brady's of the world? We know that people make all the difference in the world, but the problem is there's not that many Tom Brady's out there. So one is who are you to be able to attract a Tom Brady to your organization? So that, that comes from, you have to be somebody that wants to attract the best talent and number two, what are you doing to go out there to attract this type of person? And to go back to answer your question about capital raising versus funding it yourself, there's, I don't like bringing capital into any one of my businesses unless it's like a piece of real estate that can sell and it's not part of the actual operation of the, the real estate itself. Does that make sense? So if I'm mm-hmm. building a, 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 like a separate LLC or something, we raise capital for those, but those are, that's different because we can sell that and doesn't affect my operations of my company. Um, I think you can hire people and give them equity based on um, based on targeted numbers of profit that you have to get to. That's a great way of attracting talent in there, helping them build their world, but you're not breaking your bank for the salary to be able to do it. I've never really um, had early on in my career, even building those companies, I never had the money for some of these hires that I was making to pay for their entire salary. Yeah. People think that like people have cash just lying around. If I hired a $180,000 hire, I didn't have that money just lying around. I just took the risk that if it was the right person, we were going to see the return and I would figure that out. Um, and it, it just always happened to work out that way because if you, if you buy a lawnmower and it doesn't work, you take it back. It's the same thing in there. And so once you learn that kind of process and kind of get over that fear, it's, you, you can quickly, not quickly, but you can start to make that jump out of the fear of what, if, what happens or what does this person do and just make that key higher and then hold them highly accountable to the results that you expect. The biggest issue that I see when people make a hiring issue, a hire is that they haven't set the clarity or the expectations on how they win in their first 30, 60, or 90 days. We call it 30, 60, 90. When we hire somebody, we let them know that we've hired them for 30 days at a time for the first 90 days. And we are very clear, and this is how you win in the first 30 days. Before they hire and they sign on, you say, do you think you can accomplish these results? If you don't think so, then let's not get into business together. It doesn't mean you're not a great person or that I'm not. It just means that we're not right fit. So the clarity up front when you're hiring somebody is going to give you the peace of mind that your investment for that 30 days is either going to see a return or you're going to be able to return it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a point really well taken, Rich. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Like Every time you turn over, I'm like, well, there was like seven of them. And I, I, now I got to think of the last one. So it stays in context <laughs> for the listeners. Um, one of the things so I'm going to kind of bring back what you're talking about with hiring right there, kind of bring it back to our earlier um, comment that you had made when you were saying that you wanted to uh, fire yourself and bring on some someone to run it. I think it's it's interesting because we've seen different people. Um, there's always a lot of SKUs that people sell to get that high in revenue, but th- it sometimes that's it's one narrow niche and 
there's a lot of different skews, like in the um, Irwin, and mm-hmm. it's yeah, you know it was he- healthcare and it was a ton you know all these different products, and then there's other people that have different businesses. I still don't. I, what's a health campus, by the way? Healthcare campus healthcare. is like an Alzheimer's care facility, assisted living, independent oh. living. Oh. Yeah. It's just, oh. Okay, cool. But it still has yeah. the real estate backbone, yeah. right? So all of these seem like they have the real estate backbone. Yes. So they're but then there's some that just completely open totally different businesses. They are just like an idea generator and they open completely and then go get someone. So now I'm going to bring it back to the higher question. I'm constantly fascinated with this concept of hiring because it's almost like you're looking for someone that's almost an entrepreneur. You want them to kind of, they, you want them to care about your business and your vision and all this, but if they were totally an entrepreneur, they'd just be go off and doing their own thing. So, and again, I'm making something up on the fly as far as what I would actually call that person. You know, but... we, call, we call them intrapreneurs. Okay, mm-hmm. there you go. We call them intrapreneurs in our world. And they're the people that have a ton of entrepreneurial tendencies, can go out there if they had to and run a company, but they don't want to be the one holding the responsibility for payroll, holding responsibility of getting a lawsuit against you. So they're, And they only want to report to one person that person better stay out of their way. Mm, got it. So then my question then becomes, do you hire more for mindset and train them the skill? Or do you hire a skill and just make sure they buy into your cultural mindset? And if they don't, they're gone. Well, we hire to the person first. Um, and so if they, and ultimately it depends on the position. If we're hiring a CFO, they need to have a, a some sort of response, some sort of background in and, and accounting and QuickBooks and SEC and those type of responsibilities for it. Um, but there's a lot of people that fit that bill, but don't fit in our world culturally. You know, our entire ethos is personal growth through business success. I believe we all start businesses for the opportunity to actually grow personally. And so that is just infused in all of our, um, all of our 400 plus associates. And so when, we, when we're looking to bring people in, I want to make sure that they're humble, that they're driven in that they're, um, they have just people smarts. They can have conversations like we're having here. Um, and, and if they don't fit one of those bills, I don't care how skilled they are, they're just not going to necessarily be in our world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, um, it, and there's, there's a number of directions that I want to take this, but let me just simply ask you this. What is your exit strategy or what, what do you have uh, in mind? Is there, is there an end game to this for the, for the five businesses? What, are, are you looking to get to the the third level here of start scale exit? Although you can't see it, we're we have the camera right now, but uh, yeah, or are we just looking to scale? Like what what's the game plan for the five businesses? I think I'm always setting my organizations up for sale. Um, it doesn't mean I want to go sell them, but I also want to sell them that way so that um, if the if the opportunity is there and it makes sense for people, then maybe. Um, ultimately, right now, I get to actually accomplish both of those. Um, when we build our real estate side of, of campuses or multifamily units, we build those up. We add a, we basically look for projects that we can take from raw land, develop, permit, we construct them, we get them operated, and then we either keep them or we, right now, I mean, the literally, like what REITs are paying for these things is ridiculous. Yeah, the cap rates like, are insane yes. right now. So we get these things up and, and we have one going right now that, I mean, it's, you know, you can turn around and make $6 million in the deal in 12 months. I mean, it's just makes sense to take it in 1031 if you can and, and do it you, the next. So I like the idea of being able to sell those components 
but keeping the core people that I enjoy showing up with every day mm-hmm. um, employed and continue to building it through that avenue. Mm-hmm. And just and this will get way too detailed for most listeners here, but just for my own edification here, do you structure each of those deals as independent entities so that there are different investors in each of those healthcare campuses and each of the real estate developments? Or or do you go out and raise sort of a general opportunity fund, so to speak, that funds however many projects and then the returns from all of that gets pooled together? I assume the operations in, the, in an Alzheimer's type campus is probably separate. So it's probably a, a master lease, if you will, to a separate entity that you're also involved with. Just take us through just a, a tiny bit of that structure. We don't do anything where we um, raise blanket funds and then invest it at our discretion because it just produces SEC and I don't want to deal with all that paperwork. So we invest 100% in what we call mom and pop investing, which sounds small, but those can be large numbers where we set up an LLC, that LLC can market and then people invest directly into that LLC Mm -hmm. along with us. Then when we sell that asset, that asset then has a waterfall effect to people that are involved, depending on the class of the shares or preferred returns of what we're structuring that deal for. Um, and then the operation property management company, if it's a multifamily, we'll, our property management will will lease it and, and, and deal with all the tenants from there. Um, if it's an if it's a healthcare campus, we sub that out. We don't want, I don't want to operate anything with a healthcare license, mm-hmm. um, so we we look with an operator partner for that that'll come in there. Um, and deal with all the staffing, the nursing, and all that that type of component as well. Mm-hmm. And just for, just out of curiosity, in a multifamily play, what 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 are you seeing right now in terms of management percentages? What 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 are you taking there in Vermont? I mean, I know we're, we're I came from Chicago and we're here in San Diego. I'm just curious what those what those fees are in uh, in, in the Northeast right now. Yeah, I mean, plus or minus five percent. Okay. Uh, yeah, is what you're, you're at. Some of them you get the seven if it's there. Some of them if it's a really massive project and based on the. It also depends on how much equity I put into the project mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, allows us to dictate our terms on property management a little bit more. Yeah, and do you try to hold on to at least fifty-one percent of each deal? Do you then? Uh, I mean, like typically, you talk about the waterfall structure and ten thirty-one. So for for those who are unfamiliar with the term, so 1031, let's say Adam sells a property for um, $6 million. He has $4 million into the property. He nets $2 million. If he then takes that $2 million and buys another piece of property and uses that $2 million as equity, ostensibly he rolls it over into that property and won't pay taxes. So it's just a good way to shield um, a lot of the potential, uh, you know, it's, it's a tax play more than anything else, but it's perfectly legal. Everybody in development does that. Um, but in terms of the, the waterfall structure and so on in these developments, uh, what, what do you typically like to, to do in, in terms of, uh, like if you had your druthers, obviously you'd raise hundred percent of capital, keep hundred percent of equity and call it a day. But what, uh, what, what's a typical structure looking like for you? Yeah. You know, um, all, I would say, all of our major deals right now, we own somewhere between 60 and 70% of. There are a couple deals that I own less than 50%, but our, our um, management structure and class structure allows us to maintain um, operational rights of the project. So mm-hmm. even though we keep up a little bit more of that, we actually still can make those decisions based on that because the other groups don't own more than 51%. So we still operationally that way, we control the asset, which is what we ultimately want to be in that position. Yeah. Um, so making the final determination for that. Yeah. And, and of course it depends on the developer. I know we're getting a little real estate specific here, but you know, at the end of the day, if you, if you, if this is something that is of interest to you and you want to bring in outside capital and you want a lot of different properties, 
you know, if you own 10%, let's say you do all the legwork and you do everything, but, you know, you only own 10% of, uh, you know, of a couple $50 million properties, right? At the end of the day, you know, it's 10 million bucks that, that you own. And, and so just don't get caught up in the numbers yes. here. There's different structures. And the question is, you know, what's obviously most important to you? Is it, this is just kind of the, the question around the why and so on and so forth. But there's a lot of we different got, ways to, to structure the, the deals if real estate is of interest to you guys, for sure. And I actually just like two hours ago, I just closed on a deal that um, I took out that's worth about $5 million, And I, I took out $3.1 in debt financing. I had to buy the guy out because he's involved in another project. This is a big overall about $80 million project that I'm involved with. And the guy started making so much mess and got foreclosed on his thing that I had to come in there and absorb the debt from this guy just to keep our project going forward. So it just, it can get really dicey. Mm-hmm. Because if I lost that ability, then I would have lost all my other asset in the project because this guy was going to foreclose this guy. So it's just, you just never, when you get in these development deals, you just never know what's going to end up happening. And just our borrowing capacity is much stronger than his was. So I just went out there and just absorbed his debt from the thing and got him out of there to get control of the entire asset. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of fun things to do. Yeah. Yeah. We're a couple, know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. A couple things on the table. I mean, I'm uh, actually in the process right now of trying to get my wife set up with a funeral home. And so she's in that business. She's a licensed funeral director and embalmer. And we're trying to get her set up in her own place here in San Diego. So real estate is not cheap here in San Diego, especially if you want a standalone business in, you know, a standalone building in the city. So we're uh, looking at a couple of things, but I'm toying with some different structures uh, around that. But, and then I've got a, another project that's real estate related. If we have time, I'll, uh, I'll share that with you. But what I want to make sure that folks uh, get out of you here, first of all, is what, you know, what, what do you still struggle with, man? I mean, you seem to have all your stuff together and you got the wife and the three kids and, uh, you know, you got the, the money flowing. So what, 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 what are the struggles? Well, um, I mean, I have 99 issues every single day. I think the larger your world gets, <clears throat> the less good things start showing up at your plate. Um, and, and it is, this happens from there. I struggle with finding talent. I also struggle too. At times I feel like a fraud, um, being real, real. I, I struggle sometimes with why do people need me? Um, and so I'm forced to always, you know, you have these amazing people around you. It's, it's kind of, I think I've realized that people, I need people more than they need me. Um, so I'm, I'm constantly use that as fuel to stay a step ahead of them. Um, and so I'm always looking at how I, I spend about three or four hours a day in personal development. I train for Ironmans and, um, and I just try to always continually add value in different ways to my people. And just, it's really, it's it, our, the employee marketplace right now is so challenging. Yeah. I'm always looking for ways to make sure that we are keeping our talent, right? That's the thing is I just don't want to lose that. Um, and then also gaining the number one, the largest level of talent that we can into our organization. So we're always trying to be different from a culture standpoint. A culture is a reflection of the people that you hire, not necessarily from a top-down commandment like pizza and ping pong tables, right? It's about mm-hmm. people up in there. Um, so I struggle with those on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, look, there's there's probably a whole bunch of people right now who are either flabbergasted or amazed or, um, or just, uh, I, I guess probably a combination of a lot of things right now. When you hear, when you hear about an entrepreneur who has so many things going on and so much revenue being generated and so on, and you're saying you get three to four hours a day to put into your personal development and you're training for Ironmans and, you know, and this, that, and the other, 
what does a day in the life of Adam look like to enable you to do that? And you got a wife and, and, and three under seven. How on earth do you do all of that? It's the normal question I get. Um, you know, this is about seven years ago, I realized that if I can put in a box, people, most individuals live their life in three different boxes. The first box is like this learning box, like one to 20 you learn. And after you're done learning, you get, it's like you exit that box and like you never want to see it again. Then you go into this work box and they stay in this work box. And you know, those people that probably not your listeners, but you know, people that are in there like got five more years left in this job, even though it sucks. I just can't wait to get through it. 10 more years to get through this. So they stay in this work box for their entire life. And then to eventually sometime they can get to the third box, which is their play box. Right, which is at some point, but playing when you're 65 is different when you're playing when you're 45 or when you're 30 or when you're 50, right? So I kind of woke up to this realization and I said, Here's the deal. Um, I'm if you haven't realized, we're all gonna die, it's a zero percent chance you're not. So um, I kind of just embraced and used death as the greatest teacher and said, Okay, well, I'm going to live in these three boxes every single day. I'm gonna allocate an amount of time to play, I'm gonna allocate a certain amount of time to learn, and allocate a certain amount of time for business. And whatever I can get out of that amount of time that I'm willing to allocate to each one of those boxes is what I'm going to be okay with. And so there's a couple things here. So for number one, it puts parameters in my life. Otherwise, I love working. I would just work, right? Like I just, I think a lot of entrepreneurs can do that. The other thing is it forces me to make sure that I have the right people accomplishing the right things. Whenever our business, so for me, I get up between three and four every morning. Um, I start my I start by meditating, and then I go through a whole journaling session, it's a couple hours a day. Then I get into my exercise. While I'm exercising, I'm listening to Audible books. I crush about one to two books a week, and then from there, I get and I have breakfast with my kids to get them going. And then I have a block. I have two blocks of work from eight thirty to eleven thirty, and then from eleven thirty to one thirty, I have a break. I meditate again. I walk around the office, just get a feel, do anything that I need to do personally, check some emails. And then from one thirty to four thirty, I have another block. And outside of those times, that's Monday through Thursday, by the way, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I do not work structural. doesn't mean I'm not listening or taking things or doing those things. And my rationale behind this is I have enough wonderful people in my life that if we're not accomplishing the things that we need to accomplish with me being able to in that period of time, that I'm either casting the wrong vision, not providing enough clarity, not removing the roadblocks, or I have the wrong people. So it forces me at all times to be checking in myself to make sure that I'm focused on those things. Um, so I just set my life up that way. And I just, I just, I said, I'm not, not going to work my life away. And the funny thing is, is like I said, I need people more than they need me as we started doing this and giving and treating people like adults to be able to operate that same way. You actually start getting better results in your life. If you expect people to be on at seven, why can't they leave at one o'clock for two hours and go watch their kid have a soccer game? Right. I just never bought into any of that. So we try to structure people to live that same way, whatever that means to them um in, in their life mm-hmm. yeah points really well taken richie i know we're gonna come up against it here man and uh we'll let adam jump here soon enough but uh what what else is coming to mind anything else you want to add you know it's I'm, I'm thinking back in the mind of the listener and a lot of this sounds great you go hire the right people so you can structure the way it is and i can see how the fraud thing plays into that because you're like like, well, why am I getting the big bucks for doing this when they're the, they're the people running it? Um, but you obviously, you have to know enough to know you're hiring the right person, right? And so, again, thinking with the listener in mind, like, is there, 
do you think there's a universal answer for like earlier Steve's earlier question, the first hire? Do you do you first go for an assistant that you help that knows you and kind of is your blockade so you can go do those things? Do you hire someone to actually run the company so you can physically get completely out? Like, is there a universal sales one? Or, yeah, salesperson. Yeah. Like, it, it, yeah. I just keep coming back to this hire because it's the one thing that constantly Seems comes to be the up. bridge. Yeah, always. You know, um, I think the number one hire that you have to make in your life as you're starting off is, is a high-level EA. Um, they're the most fundamental position. In fact, I mean, I wrote, you guys already know this, but I wrote an entire book about this, The Founder and the Force Multiplier, um, just because we had uh, so many responses from the relationship I have with my chief of staff. And it's really about force multiplying your own position. And that's what you need in order to leverage. You need to be able to have somebody that's duplicating you. And so when you have a high level EA, not like the Devil Wears Prada type EA, but when you have like a chief of staff and you think of like the White House chief of staff, you guys are working on the same problems, just different parts of it. So you're, you're pushing things through much faster so you can force multiply your life. And if you really drill down and you talk to, you know, individuals who have built massive companies or people that just have built really great companies, they had some sort of operational component. They may have called it something different, but they were EA-like, meaning that they took so much off their plate to give the, the entrepreneur his role and his opportunity to create vision, to create clarity, and then start pushing forward and then go out there and train to go out and hire the right people. So if there's anything people are listening to, you need a high, high level EA in your life that's going to help operationally. And then as you grow, they can slither off parts of their job because in the beginning, everyone's wearing a thousand hats, start slithering off parts of their job that they no longer want to do. That's not their strength zone. That becomes your next hire. And then they make the next hire. But you always have that person that's the shield between you and your organization so you don't get pulled down into it as much as you don't have to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's really great stuff, man. And, uh, and oh, I mean, come on, 37, I mean, it's it's impressive, dude. There's no, there's no doubt at all about that. And then being able to do the Ironman stuff, I mean, I installed, uh, you know, the thing that takes the, uh, like you sit in the chair and it takes you from the ground floor up to the, you know, up to the second floor and one of those chairs, you see those along the railings and staircases and houses. I installed something similar in my house uh, that takes me from the couch to the refrigerator. So I just, I just <laughs> go from the couch and I just sit in that chair and then I just push that button and it just kind of moves me along. So, you know, I mean, come on, Iron Man, was that like a 56 mile swim, a 300,000 mile bike and like a four marathons all in like a day and a half or something like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, did yeah, you, did, did you do the full on Ironman, the full on Hawaii one? Um, I've done a couple uh, full on Ironmans and it's there. It's a 2.4 mile swim, 112 on a bike and you run a marathon. But here's the thing. Part of it is one of the, <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> one of the reasons why I actually I do them is because I want I, I, people think that I love exercising. It's actually not true. I don't like exercising. I like the mental fitness that it creates. And I think people, if they want to grow bigger in business and they want to hold the weight and the risk of a lawsuit of people leaving and those things, they need to develop their own emotional fitness. Mm -hmm. And yes, you will do it through business, but you can accelerate that by practicing it just like you go to the gym and work out. How you do that is when you wake up in the morning, every morning at four or three, and your mind says, I don't want to get up, and you force yourself to do, you're building emotional fitness. Mm -hmm. Then when you, you want to stop running at two miles, you end up running eight, you built emotional fitness. So that when you show up in the office, you just crushed yourself in the morning, and a problem shows up, you're like, I got it. I got it. So you just, mm -hmm. it's just the perfect 
possible model in a way for me to grow emotionally so that I have a better level of fitness so I can stay more clear when problems show up for my organization. Yeah, points well taken. I do uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I've been doing that for uh, almost 20 years now. And one of the things that uh, my current teacher talks about is, you know, it's, it's okay in Jiu-Jitsu to tap out to to others. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm brown belt. I'll be a black belt soon enough. But it's just, awesome. you know, you, you it's okay to tap out to others. It's how you live. It's how you learn. You just don't ever, ever want to tap out to yourself. You know, as long as you stay in the game and you keep going, you'll get to the black belt, this, that, and the other. And I think the, the there, there's a lot of... Uh, analogous to what it is that you're talking about here. Uh, let, let me give you the opportunity uh, to share where folks can go to get more information about you or what it is that you want them to do. Go pick up the book, whatever it is. Uh, we'll, we'll give you that opportunity. Now, what 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 should folks do? Yeah, I mean, you can go to adamhergenrother.com, adamhergenrother.com, and it links to every single thing that we have, including our book, The Founder and the Force Multiplier. Um, we, I write a blog every week, but we're in about 139 countries now, which is pretty cool. Wow. Um, so if you want to, you want to check out what the, the words of, of things that we share every, every Thursday or Friday comes out. I'd love for you to subscribe to that as well too. Yeah. And I know you've got personal development type trainings that you lead and, and so on. So you can see all that information there, uh, at Adam's site. So definitely check that out. Last 30 seconds or so, Adam, any, uh, any, any final thoughts around entrepreneurship or life balance or wherever you want to take it? I think the most important thing for an entrepreneur to do is realize you're not your thoughts and you're not your emotions. And the more that you can recognize that, the more clear that you stay when problems show up in your life. So part of that is just surrendering to the life events as they occur, taking a step back, providing that space because challenges are going to show up every single minute of every single day. If you become the thought or become the emotion, you cannot be the leader that your team expects you to be. So if there's anything you can put into practice from there is to start learning and refreshing yourself, to move yourself and create the space to allow problems to come up and show up, but just realize you're never them so that you can actually rise above the problem and solve it. Yeah, really great stuff. Adam Hergen Rother, A-D-A-M-H-E-R-G-E-N-R-O-T-H-E-R.com. Go check out everything that he is doing. We'll wave goodbye to you here on the video version and wish you well. Appreciate all of your time and for sharing all of your expertise. Check out what Adam is doing. And I'm going to turn over to my buddy here, Richie. And uh, and just once again, man, you know, just awesome to be able to have people like Adam share so much of their brilliance with us. And uh, that's why we encourage you guys to listen to the archives and uh, make sure you go back and listen to the past episodes of Beyond Eight Figures. You'll hear so much from so, so many, uh, including, of course, uh, people on the level of uh, of Adam and uh, and and on the billionaire level and so on and so forth. So make sure you go back, listen to all the archives, check out everything at beyond8figures.com. For Richie Ote, why wait holding it down in the studio? Kelly's under control back at headquarters. I'm Steve Olsher. We'll talk to you next time here on Beyond 8 Figures.